Hello, my name is Keila Hill Trawick, and I run a boutique CPA firm called Little Fish Accounting just outside of Washington, D.C. And two things that I'm really looking forward to with the increased IRS funding are one, the number of customer service reps going up will really allow us from a practitioner standpoint to be able to serve better. I'm looking forward to being able to call and not be put on hold for so long that we're not able to effectively answer our clients' questions. The second thing is the updated technology that will allow both clients and or taxpayers and tax practitioners to self-service, to be able to use technology to check the status of things and submit reports faster than the mail functionality that we use now. The Internal Revenue Service is about to get a whole lot of cash, not from taxpayers, but from the federal government. Around $80 billion are headed to the tax agency over the next decade. That's thanks to the Inflation Reduction Act, which President Biden signed into law in mid-August. Well, it's the biggest infusion of federal funds the beleaguered IRS has seen in decades. Every year, the IRS collects around $600 billion less than it's owed. New enforcement officers will help close that gap, but some congressional Republicans are not on board. Are they going to have a strike force that goes in with uh, AK-15s already loaded, ready to shoot? After the break, we'll take a closer look at what's been going on at the IRS and how the agency plans to use this new money and what it could mean for you. I'm David Gura, in for Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Remember, to join us for future conversations, download the 1A Vox Pop app and leave us a voicemail. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. Introducing Group Sessions, a new BetterHelp therapy offering currently in pilot testing. Therapist Joy Bergheimer shares how finding a community of people with shared experiences can help clients become more comfortable with therapy. For quite some time, we have not normalized mental wellness, and a lot of our families would shame you when you would say that you were feeling depressed or you're feeling overwhelmed. If you have been told over and over again that basically you have a character flaw, if you're seeking therapy, that's going to be a reason that people don't want to go seek therapy. But actually being in group with other people and hearing them say a story that feels like it came right out of your book is huge. Like, oh my gosh, this is not abnormal, right? And this person is further along in their journey than me. So now I know that therapy is something that can shift things for me. So really seeing their peers has been a huge shift for people accepting therapy for themselves. To get 10% off your first month of online therapy, go to BetterHelp.com slash 1A. We're discussing the IRS and the additional billions the agency is expected to receive over the next decade. Joining us is Richard Rubin. He covers U.S. tax policy for The Wall Street Journal. Hey there, Richard. Welcome back to 1A. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Nina Olson is the executive director of the nonpartisan nonprofit, the Center for Taxpayer Rights. She was also the national taxpayer advocate at the IRS from 2001 to 2019. And in that role, she led the Taxpayer Advocate Service. That's an independent organization within the agency that protects taxpayers' rights and ensures they're treated fairly. Hey, Nina. Hey there. Thank you for having me. And John Koskinen uh, was the head of the IRS from 2013 to 2017 under former Presidents Barack Obama and Donald Trump. Hey there, John. Great to have you with us. Uh, Good morning, everybody. Richard, let me start with you. Uh, Let's go back to what we heard there at the top from Senator Grassley, uh, warning that this money could be spent on armed agents. Fact check this for us. We've heard variations on that for the last few weeks. Sure, some of it will be. There there is a part of the IRS, the Criminal Investigation Division, is about two to 3,000 people out of the 80,000 that are current IRS employees, uh, which is expanding, um, who are 
federal law enforcement officers like um, FBI agents, DEA agents, Border Patrol agents. Um, they investigate crimes and they are armed. So they're investigating, sometimes assisting in multi-agency task forces, helping on uh, drug trafficking cases and uh, all sorts of things, you know, financial crimes, um, all sorts of things where you presumably might need to be armed in order to um, execute a warrant or uh, search a, search something or arrest someone. That is a small minority of the IRS. Um, lar- the largest piece of the IRS, um, customer service representatives who answer the phone, people who process paper in large campuses, uh, people who conduct audits and collect taxes uh, by going out to taxpayers are generally not armed. Um, they are, you know, they have the force of law behind them for sure, but it is a small fraction of, of IRS employees, both new, both current and new, who are armed. Uh, in August, Republican Senator Ted Cruz of Texas spoke to Fox News about the new workers the IRS plans to hire. These IRS agents aren't there to go after billionaires. They're there to go after you. They're there to go after your small business. They're there to go after your family. The Democrats' idea is if they audit the hell out of every American, think of all the money they can raise. At a briefing later in August, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre said, not so fast. This is focus on those who are corporate wealthy tax cheats that Republicans, congressional Republicans, wanted to uh, defend. That's who they wanted to defend. They wanted to defend those corporate uh, tax cheats. This is not about this is not about that. This is not about folks who make less than four hundred thousand. What's the truth here, Richard? Where does the truth lie? So the administration and Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen have said that the new money won't be used to expand audit rates of people below 400,000 above historical levels. Now, it's not clear exactly what that means, that historical levels, like where audit rates are now or where they were 10 years ago when the IRS had more people. Um, but in general, that's, that's their aim, is to really focus as many of these resources as possible at higher income people, at... Uh, you know, at, at large corporations. And, and when you think about where the, what we call the tax gap, the difference between taxes owed and taxes collected, a, a lot of that is in businesses, both smart, small and large. It, individuals who are wage earners, the, you, you know the IRS gets a copy of your W-2. Mm-hmm. And so th- there's very little incentive to go underreport your income because y- you know that they know exactly what you made. Um, for people who are independent contractors, who have business income, where the, the definition of a business ex- expense can get a little squishy for large corporations, that's where there's more ability, and that's where the IRS is going to start looking. Um, it, it doesn't mean... I think one thing that the IRS has to work on and knows it has to work on is audit. We call audit selection: who gets audited, how they decide who gets audited. Because um, one thing that's very burdensome for taxpayers is if you're and, and Nina can talk about this, I'm sure as well. Is if you're chosen for audit, you provide a lot of paperwork. You go if it's a face-to-face audit, you meet with the the revenue agent, you have all these conversations, and they find nothing. That's a a you know not a great use of the government's time. It's not a great use of the taxpayer's time and it builds sort of bad will. Uh, So what they're also aiming to do partly with technology, partly with people is to focus audit selection on places uh, and areas that are ripe on taxpayers who they think have good reason to think might be underreporting income and, and then try and get, get money from there. And that's one thing they, they know they need to, to focus on. 
And also, let me turn to you. What do you expect to change as a result of there being more money available to the agency? Well, it's, you know, what Treasury has said is right now their focus on the spending of the money is going to be increasing the number of what we would call frontline employees handling taxpayer inquiries, processing returns and things like that, the customer service reps. You know, for 2022, the IRS actually answered only 10% of the 72 million calls that were received during the filing season. And that's an abysmal rate, and people have experienced waiting on the phone for an hour and a half only to receive what's called the courtesy disconnect. When they get <laughs> onto the phone, um, they if they get an assister, often the assister can see that you know there was a notice sent out, but they cannot see the actual contents of the notice, and they cannot see into that part of the taxpayer's account because the IRS stores information on sixty over sixty different case management systems, and the CSRs may not have access to those systems. So, you know, this is the combination of technology and more human beings just to answer the phone calls coming in. I'd also note that, you know, a lot of those calls are repeat calls because people get disconnected or mm-hmm. busy signal call back. So the more that you're able to staff up, you know, the more, the lower number, you know, the lower the number of the percentage of calls going unanswered will be. So there's like a cyclical thing. The other thing is that, you know, the IRS has for decades tried to move taxpayers online and they've tried to build an online account and you know the the that taxpayers can access information themselves the problem with that is that there's only about 20 some odd percent of current taxpayers who actually have created an online account because the security to create one is so great that you may not be able to do it you want to protect that very vital information the IRS has against identity theft. So you sort of have all of these play, these things playing. Um, and I'm, the final thing that I'd say when sure. I was the national taxpayer advocate, I recommended that the IRS look at its processes through what I call a taxpayer anxiety index. No which is, you know, there are certain tasks that they're really comfortable with doing online, you know, checking your balance, making sure that something's been filed, doing some emails back and forth at the agency. But at some point, you're going to want to talk to a live human being. And they should really look at all their processes and say, this is the point where people's anxiety has gone through the roof. They are having a hard time breathing. They really want to get through to somebody. And staff accordingly. You know, do your staffing plan according to when people really will need to talk to somebody. Hmm. And digital just doesn't cut it. Many more of you weighing, on on the, weighing in on this. Last year, I was overpaid by them by $1,000 on my refund. I attempted to contact them immediately to return the money, uh, but could not get through. I've been in a nightmare with the IRS for over a year now. We have a lower than the standard deduction amount. Our income is mostly Social Security. I filed a simplified tax return, but I got a letter saying that I owed $280. Wrote to them, and after four letters and nine months... About... Ten hours on the phone, uh, five letters, two registered letters. I finally uh, filed a, an amended form. I got another two letters from the IRS. I finally uh, was told, yes, I do owe the money. I paid it back, but they want to charge me 
$16 in interest. They obviously aren't in the business of trying to help anyone. I'm hoping that when they, we have new agents, simple issues like this can be solved. John Koskinen, let me turn to you. I imagine that you've heard, uh, Jeremiah had liked this before, you've heard these complaints before. What, what can the agency do better here to engage with the public in a way that doesn't lead to those kinds of calls, that kind of frustration, the courtesy disconnect, as Nina put it so eloquently just, just a moment ago? Well, as uh, Nina was explaining, and I've tried to get people to understand, the basic issue is not to, to solve it is not rocket science. You simply have not had enough people to answer the phones. So as a fundamental problem, uh, the first thing that this money is going to be used for, I assume, is to hire more uh, call center employees uh, so that when you call, you don't have to wait for an hour and a half or get disconnected, uh, that you will be able to connect to somebody and be able to get an answer to your question. But Nina pointed out something that I discovered as I was wandering around the country talking to IRS employees. I actually ended up talking to about 22,000 of them. And that was the famous 60 separate case management systems. So part of the problem is if you get a hold of an operator, today they can't see the entire uh, realm of your interactions. I used to think that if we could get an enterprise case management system where you had one case management system, it would be great for employees so they wouldn't be packaging stuff up and mailing it back and forth across the country. But the more we started to developed the enterprise case management system, the more it became clear this was a great improvement in taxpayer service. Because as Nina says, when you call and get a hold of someone, you'd like them to know exactly what you said before, who you talked to, what your issues are, what the letter looks like that you got, and be able to resolve it on the spot. So I had hoped that we'd get that done before I left. Then I was assured it would be done within a year or two. uh, And it is one of the things that's on the plate. And I think that by itself will significantly improve taxpayer service. Richard Rubin of the Wall Street Journal, let me, let me turn to you on this issue of technology. And there was this wonderful piece by Catherine Rampell, who's a columnist for the Washington Post. She went down to Austin to the uh, IRS facility there uh, with a photographer and <laughs> looked at how crowded it was with paper, as uh, we've heard described by John and, and, and Nina, and also the, the technology in that facility, running COBOL from the 1960s or uh, a machine that's reliant on Windows XP from, from 2001. Um, there, there is a slice or an indication of how outdated or outmoded the technology is here. But when you look at this $80 billion pot, how much of that is going to go to improving what we've heard John and Nina talking about? Yeah. So I, I took a similar trip to the a similar service center, which is in, in Ogden, Utah. And the amount of paper is, you know, even just from the handful, relatively small minority of taxpayers that are filing on paper, the, the amount of paper is just staggering. Uh, and the amount of time it takes to sort of process a paper return to kind of catch up to where an electronic return is. A lot of um, stapling. Of the 80, <laughs> it's a lot of stapling and unstapling and red pens and typing. It's, it's, it's extraordinary. Um, and which is basically why the IRS doesn't have 120,000 people like it had 30 years ago. Like it, it has digitized a lot. Like let's not underestimate the massive shift to e-filing that's happened and the, and the savings that that's created. As far as this money, there's about 20-some billion that's for what's called operations support. So that's a very sort of flexible money. Some of it is for administration. Some of it can be used for IT. And then there's a few billion dollars for what they call business systems modernization, which is the the kind of enterprise case management um, overhaul work that that, uh, Commissioner Koskinen was talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, IT projects, IT modernization projects have a not great track record in both the public and private sectors. There, you know, there are 
you know, the, the history of fixing old systems is replete with disasters. And I, it, it is no guarantee at all that they will be able to implement something, design and implement something successfully with, with the money they've got. It is an extraordinary challenge. And, and, and part of what they're concerned about is the, is privacy. So you think about like, when we think about the IRS, think about it like dealing with a credit card company, right? So you're, you know, you want to be able to call and have the person who you call access all the information. You can have an online account um, where you can go on and check what transactions were made and, and what payments were made. So it, you can think of it as similar to that, but with this extraordinary set of rules layer, layered over it designed to really emphasize the security of taxpayer data. And mm. uh, it, it's, it's a real challenge that they've got, um, both in design, implementation, and as the commissioner talked about before, in, in hiring the people to, to do all that. We'll be back with more of our conversation in just a moment. Let's get back to talking about the IRS with this message from Chris. I had an incident with the IRS where they sent me a notice that I owed thirty-four thousand uh, dollars in back taxes, and of course, it's a very simple thing where I had entered my retirement as a wage instead of as a retirement. It was so obvious, uh, but it's impossible to talk to anyone on the phone and point out the obvious error. Uh, after two years of exchanging letters, uh, in the end, I sent them a check for a hundred. add another voice to the conversation now. Natasha Saran is Counselor for Tax Policy and Implementation at the U.S. Treasury Department. Natasha, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Let me ask you, first of all, uh, just about how this money is going to be spent, or at least how the Treasury Department would like to see it uh, spent. Any clarity on sort of how it's going to be parceled out or what it's going to go to at this point? Well, it's been great, actually, to start to listen to uh, Nina and Commissioner Koskinen and Rich because they've really outlined for you where you are going to see these resources and how the IRS and taxpayers' experience with the IRS is going to be transformed from finally investing in the agency the way it so desperately needs. Over the course of the pandemic, the IRS has managed to get out $1.5 trillion of support to taxpayers. It's managed to get out critical lifelines. It's managed to advance the child tax credit and lift millions of children out of poverty. And it did all of that without the resources in place that it needed. And as a result, it entered into this filing season in a really challenging position without the tools that it needed to be able to answer the phones with a level of inventory that had in terms of unprocessed returns that was incredibly high by historical standards. And so first and foremost, what you're going to see from the IRS as a result of this resource infusion is you're going to see an IRS that's able to serve taxpayers the way they deserve. And that means, as Commissioner Koskinen already pointed out, that some of these dollars, the very first dollars, are going to be spent hiring customer service representatives to be able to staff the phone lines. So as early as next filing season, you're going to have an IRS that's going to be there to answer your calls when you have questions and make sure you get the credits to which you're entitled. But it also means that people don't want, many people don't want to communicate with the IRS on the phone. They don't want to send in faxes or to send in snail mail uh, to the agency to try to communicate that way. What they want is an IRS that's able to 
be in the 21st century the way your financial institution is and communicate with you digitally and instantaneously. And that's what these resources are going to provide for when they're able to upgrade the IRS's technology from a 1960s ecosystem to a 21st century Mm. one and create a really integrated experience, both for the IRS, where they're able, as Nina was already speaking to, to be able to track their experiences with individual taxpayers over time, but also for taxpayers so that all of their information is available in one place and they have incredibly quick access to it. I want to ask you about e-filing, something that has been discussed and wished for by many for for a long time. I know there's a chunk of money uh, in this package that will be for a study to look into how we can get an e-filing system here uh, in the U.S. that is now done the route for doing that is through through private companies right now. Uh, how long might it take until we get a kind of universal e-filing system through the IRS? You know, uh, it's a really interesting set of questions. The reality is the IRS is incredibly excited about this opportunity to study the ways in which it can create a simpler filing experience for taxpayers, what they at the agency refer to as real-time tax processing. The Where we are today is we haven't invested enough in exploring the possibilities and the ways in which we can simplify the filing experience for taxpayers. In other countries, you can file your returns by text or experience a digital interface like most financial institutions have here in the United States. We simply have to make it easier for people to engage with the IRS. And that is actually what the, this funding is all about. It's about providing for those opportunities and allowing the IRS to invest. And to Commissioner Koskinen's point, hmm. these sorts of changes aren't going to happen at the agency overnight. And that is why this multi-year funding is so critical, because it allows the IRS to start to make progress on these dimensions in year one with the certainty that in years two and three, as it needs to build the technology and create that infrastructure, the resources to support those investments are going to be there. Uh, we got a tweet here from David. If the IRS knows what I make, why can't they just send me an itemized bill that I can examine and then either pay or appeal with documentation? Nina Olson, I'll turn to you with that question. Why are things the way they are? And you know, we're talking about those who are working regular jobs, and of course, there's filings with their employers, and the government would have access to that information. Why do we have the filing system that we have right now, and is there any talk of sort of whole-scale revising that, changing how we file taxes in this country? The IRS is an outlier among tax agencies around the world, both in developed and developing countries. Almost every single tax agency has a direct free e-filing portal, and many of them, you know, either complete an entire return for the taxpayer that has only wages or at least makes the information available to the taxpayer so that when they log on, they see what the agency knows. Now, there is some concern about whether taxpayers who have other kinds of income then, you know, just hit accept and don't fill in that other income. And I think there's got to be a proper balance between that. But what I advocated from about 2002 on was, um, and made many legislative recommendations during that time, um, that the IRS make available to taxpayers the information that it does have so it can download that information, whether it's to a government, you know, electronic, free electronic filing, or it's to commercial software, because those those products 
you know, link to your, your brokerage account and download information from there. Or you can just print it out and hand it to your return preparer so that you don't lose that W-2 or 1099 interest statement that was mailed to your old address or you forgot that you worked for a company for one month at the beginning of the year, you know. Um, it saves mistakes, I do want to mention one thing, and this goes to return filing, and it goes to something that one of the reporters, I mean, one of the callers said, you know, when we focus a lot on audit rates, we need to be a little bit clearer what we mean. The IRS and Congress, has the Internal Revenue Code, has a very specific definition of what an audit is, which is an examination of books and records. And that internal, that legal definition has allowed the IRS to define a way and not include in its audit rate a lot of compliance touches that it does with taxpayers. So the caller who said he had that little adjustment and been going back and forth, that, that contact was probably not included in the audit rate. It was a correction. It felt to him like he was being audited, but it was really a machine adjusted, what I call unreal audits. And the IRS does a vast number more of those kinds of touches than it does of actual audits. So um, you really have to look at the overall compliance activity that the IRS is doing, not just the audit rates, and see what the taxpayer's experience is with those kinds of adjustments. And a lot of those adjustments involve, for example, denying a child tax credit or an earned income tax credit to a low-income taxpayer for a child that somebody else claimed on a return. That's not an audit. It's just a denial. And the taxpayers then locked into going back and forth with the IRS trying to get somebody to listen to them. And I'm hoping that, you know, that we just not focus on audit rates, but we focus on the overall experience of the taxpayer as they're interacting with the agency. That's Nina Olson, Executive Director of the Center for Taxpayer Rights. We're also joined by Richard Rubin, U.S. tax policy reporter at the Wall Street Journal, John Koskinen, former IRS commissioner, and Natasha Sarin, Deputy Assistant Secretary for Economic Policy for the Treasury Department. Here's another story from one of you. Here's Jonathan in North Carolina. In December of 2021, I received a proposed bill from the IRS for about $9,000. I was able to work with IRS agents and reduce this total amount down to about $3,800, and I found everybody that I talked to was extremely knowledgeable and helpful. My only issue is that it took about nine months to do this, and I feel like it shouldn't have taken more than about two months. Got an email from Lori as well. As someone who is currently on day 149 and counting from the date that I mailed in my 2021 income tax return, with still no refund check in my hand, I ask, how much of this billions of dollars windfall going to the IRS is going to be used for interest payments to taxpayers due to the IRS inability to pay us our refunds in a reasonable amount of time? Uh, Natasha, I'll, I'll put that question to you. And, and you know, I don't know if you want to answer that directly or step back and just talk about um, the delay in, in issuing refund payments. But I know that that's something that many people are, are frustrated with these days. And, you know, they should be frustrated by it because they've had the experience of trying to interact with an IRS that, again, you spoke about Catherine's piece, and I know Rich has written about this as well. If you, I've been lucky enough to spend time at IRS processing facilities across the country and meet with these dedicated IRS employees who over the course of the pandemic have been at the front lines opening mail, uh, sorting mail, transcribing by hand returns, trying to enter digitally into their systems each and every line item from the tax return. The 
reality is that because of the nature of these antiquated systems that IRS employees have been working on, where so much of this work is manual, where six to eight IRS employees touch each paper return in order to get information into the IRS's system so that that return can be processed. In a world in which you're dealing with a global pandemic, it is no surprise that they entered this filing season with tens of millions of returns that were unprocessed. And what these resources are going to mean for the IRS, the commissioner has been very clear, the IRS is going to get to healthy levels of inventory this year. That's going to be super meaningful from taxpayers' perspective. That means they're going to get their refunds and finally those returns are going to be processed. But going forward, what this resource infusion means for the agency is they aren't going to have this type of challenge arise again because they are going to have a modernized processing system even for the paper that does come in. Even for paper that is coming into the agency, that paper should be scanned. Those returns should be digitally updated. It shouldn't require eight people to touch each uh, paper return that is filed in order to have information be in the IRS's system so the IRS can provide you an update on the nature of when your return is going to be processed. And that type of change is exactly what this transformative infusion for the IRS is going to be able to deliver. Richard Rubin, count me among those who count on you for day-to-day coverage uh, of this, what happens to the, to the $80 billion, but taxes and, and the IRS more generally. And I wonder what you're going to be watching for in the weeks and months to come. I guess principally it's, it's who's going to be running the show at, at the IRS. Uh, Chuck Reddick, who we've been talking about, the current commissioner, I believe his tenure is up in, in November. Um, what's on the horizon for you? What, what should we be paying attention to? Well, not to give away everything I'm going to write, but yes, that's one is uh, <laughs> you should subscribe. Um, but uh, number one is is the new commissioner, right? So the administration has to nominate someone who then has to be confirmed by the Senate. I expect that to happen relatively soon because they they have a lot of incentive to run that nomination through the Democratic-controlled Senate in case it flips after the election. Uh, I think watching this you know, hiring binge that are about to go on for customer service reps, how successful they are at getting people hired and on board. Um, we're also expecting a, a more detailed plan from the IRS that, that will sort of lay out how, the, how they're going to use this funding. So you know, we're looking for that and see how that's going. And the other thing is $80 billion, you know, the IRS currently spends 12 or so billion dollars a year, mm-hmm. 80 billion isn't like pre-funding the IRS for the next decade. So there will still be coming up in this uh, next session, this next few weeks in Congress and into December, a lot of discussion about what the base budget for the IRS looks like. If Congress comes along and says, oh no, you've got money, you don't get much more and cuts the base budget, then this doesn't really amount to much. If It really only works if this multi-year funding comes on top of it and it, it provides this expansion and transformation that that they've been talking about. Richard Rubin is with Wall Street Journal, doing his editor proud. Subscribe to the journal. Nina Olson, executive director of the Center for Taxpayer Rights, the former national taxpayer advocate at the IRS. John Koskinen, former commissioner of the IRS. Natasha Saran, deputy assistant secretary for economic policy at the Treasury Department. Today's producer was Avery J.C. Kleinman. I'm David Gura. Let's talk more soon. This is 1A.